Hi, Michael. Hey, how's it going, Karen? Good. I'm uh, so excited about our conversation here. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this as well. Yeah. So, so one of the things I thought we could do is tackle this issue of data compression and talk about it as it, um, your, your area is more in the computer science arena, from what I understand. Text-based, generally speaking, I'm actually on the, like the sales side, but I've, I've been in the technical world, I guess, for like better part of 15 years. Okay. So, so I would be curious in um, learning about data compression from the technical side, but then I thought it would be fun to talk about it in terms of how it might relate to language and knowledge and memory, and then maybe we could even tackle consciousness and, and see what we can accomplish. Sounds good. Okay. So would you give me a little bit of background on just exactly what data compression is and how it, wor how it, is, um, how it works in computer science or how you tend to think of it in that arena? <clears throat> yeah. I mean, it, it's simply the, um, the arrangement of information such that you can uh, so there's a number of ways you can think about it. There's there's lossless data compression where you basically can fully recreate what was the original thing, and then there's um, more often you know like stuff like what we're doing right now with video compression. Right now, that's how we're talking. There's uh, that has some amount of loss in it, but it's like an acceptable amount, right? It's like it's not enough in some cases that you can even perceive it with the human eye. So it's it's you lose some of the information, but um, you're fine with that. Um, and essentially the way in, in the IT perspective, data compression usually works is that um, the, the algorithm that's doing the compression is looking for some sort of like reoccurring pattern within the, the data stream at large. And so when it finds that pattern, um, it, it can now reference that pattern with like this token. Like, so anytime pattern X occurs, I'll reference it with this little token here. And as a way of, so as a way of doing that now, um, every time it reoccurs, the more it reoccurs, um, the more I can, um, you know, compress the size, right? Because instead of recreating that whole thing, I just have this reference point and I just fill in that pattern. I don't know if this is making sense or not. Um, yes, absolutely. This is fascinating. <laughs> so for instance, like, um, a great way to think about it, like, so in our video conversation right now, a good way to think about it is like, you know, um, I'm doing the talking right now, so I'm moving a good bit more than you are. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the information related to your movements in the video stream are just don't have to be represented at all because they're not changing, mm -hmm. you know? So, so what, what the, a lot of, and, and specifically in video is those compression algorithms are often doing, it's just, it's just, I'm going to compute the change between what happened last and, um, and what's happening in the next frame and I'll just send the changes. So anything that stayed the same, like your door behind you is not moving at all, I don't need to send that data again, I'll just send it as it is. Right, and everything um, that's behind you is not moving at all, so that's, that just mm -hmm. remains the same. And yeah, and you can pick up on this, once you learn to understand how these compression algorithms work, you can like say, say I'm watching a movie at home, I'll, this is something I'll, I'll notice sometimes, something that, that's hard to compress, like, uh, say it's a really dark screen and there's like some smoke comes in that smoke can wreak havoc with some of those compression algorithms sometimes because the smoke has this kind of uh 
chaotic quality to it where the, the patterns are very difficult to, to find and you can, you can see some weird pixelization come in as a result of that every once in a while, if you're looking for it. Um, it's also why, you know, like, uh, you notice, I'll notice compression events or compression, I guess, uh, artifacts, you would call them when I'm watching like sporting events and stuff, because in the sporting events, there's so much going on that, um, so many things are happening simultaneously that, uh, it's, it's harder for, uh, those algorithms to work effectively, if that makes sense. Sure. When everything's moving really fast or when, like with smoke, when it's kind of amorphous, that makes me think a little bit about, I was watching this video about, um, quantum mechanics and this idea that that it's very hard to calculate the probabilities when that he shows this kind of wave wave function is actually everywhere at once and so it's it's kind of like a cloud and so that that's the way smoke would be where there's many different possibilities where all those little particles of smoke are moving all at the same time. So, so it's not calculable. Yeah. And and there's, there's an interesting connection too between what you could think of as, as data compression and and intelligence overall, because what you're doing anytime you try and compress the data is figure out in a certain sense. Now the algorithms aren't doing this, but I think, this is often what we're doing as biological creatures is you're trying to figure out what's important, right? So that's what you're, so like, for instance, you know, stories are a really great data compression algorithm. You know, if I, if I was to ask you, you know, um, what was your day like yesterday? Like you would, you would on the fly create this kind of, um, well, you wouldn't create it on the fly, you, but you would be referencing your memory of that day. And what would stick out to you as salient is what, you know, all the layers of you as a biological being had noted as being important. So it would be, it would be a compression of those things that, you know, after you've slept and it's all kind of compiled down into distilled into something you would, you would relate back to, to me in a story form, but it's kind of like a, a compression of that. And, and you would say, you know, um, there's, there's, there's some kind of overlap between our ability to do that, uh, I guess efficiently, but also to focus to actually focus on the things that really mattered in that day, right? Um, versus there's probably a million things that really mattered in that day that we don't have the intelligence or the perspective that we just go by and miss, you know? Um, and sometimes we don't figure out till like, you know, 10 years down the road, what, what a impact that thing had on us. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, we missed the impact that those things might have had on others around us as well. You know, there might have been some thing that we said or something that, that happened that really was impactful in the rest of the universe, but we just didn't notice it. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, there's things like, you know, I can think of, yeah, where like, you know, something happened, you know, like um, where somebody says something in an offhand way, but it really hits you between the eyes in some way. And you, it reframes your whole perspective on something. And for that person, it was just a throwaway comment, but for you, it was incredibly impactful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so I'm thinking about something I heard about, I think it's frogs that, um, 
they don't actually see the way we see where we're always calculating what we're looking at, but mm -hmm. they, they only see, they see a, a picture and they only see it every four seconds. So hmm. they get a picture of what the world looks like. And then four seconds later, they get another picture of the way the world looks like. So when they are calculating, they that their brain has to determine where things are going to be based on where they were. Yeah. And, and they don't actually know until the we're actually doing that too, but we just, we don't, we don't are not aware of it. Like for instance, even like a human just catching a ball, mm -hmm. there's not enough time for the nerves. The nerves travel surprisingly slowly up and down, like say your arm. So you couldn't, you couldn't adjust in real time your arm to where the ball is going to be. Your brain has to make this quick prediction, you know, about where it's going to get your arm there in time. Mm -hmm. so, you know, you, so we're doing the same thing, but they're kind of having to do it, I guess, at a larger scale or like with less information to make that calculation. Well, so do, do, do data compression algorithms work somewhat the same way where they're, they're like snapshots of the data at certain intervals and then that's what's, and then they're just calculating what's happening in between? I think so. I mean, I mean, for instance, what's funny is um, think of like of the story as a um, as a compression algorithm. Every time you retell a story, it changes. So it, it sits in some some format in your brain, but but uh, that format is compressed. It doesn't contain all the data. Like say, there's a token for. I don't even know how to, to think of this, but um, like a conversation you had that day was meaningful, um, this or that happened. And then when you try and breathe life back into that, your new perspective now in the future is what you're doing that from. But so you're, you're expanding it back out with, uh, for instance, if there was a car in the story, you might mistakenly think that that was the car you're driving now. Whereas back then it was a different car or like all these other things, like you kind of fill in the, your framework now breathes life back into it. And so you'll, you'll change the story in ways that are imperceptible to you. But you know, if you had a video recorder, you might notice that, okay, actually a bunch of this actually changed in the retelling and you retell it a lot of times with a lot of people telling the story, you, you get all kinds of changes to it. Um, I, find, I find this happening a lot when I'm trying to re um, put back together a conversation that I might have had with somebody. Let's say I'm my, I tell my husband, oh, I had a nice talk with so-and-so yesterday. And he'll say, oh, what did you talk about? And <laughs> I create the conversation. Yeah, it's difficult. It's, it's really difficult to even calculate what the main theme was of the conversation. And so I find myself kind of simplifying in ways that isn't very satisfying. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think especially these kind of conversations that you're having on your channel, they're kind of on the edge of our capacity to even articulate, even in this expanded form, which, you know, you could talk about these things for hours, right? And still not feel like maybe you got to the actual thing you were trying to say. So yeah, it doesn't, doesn't compress well at all when, when trying to relate it to somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> I, wasn't, I wasn't thinking about the compression thing, but yeah, that's true. <laughs> Well, that's what you're trying to do. When somebody says, what was it about? You're like, okay, this hour and a half, what was all about? You know, that's, that's, it's difficult, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's so difficult to really talk about 
especially when you're in relationship with somebody, to really try to explain what it is that you're thinking. You might say something and think that you're being perfectly innocent in saying it, but they receive it in a completely different way. And then you have to backtrack and try to explain, well, that's not what I meant. But, but then if you're really honest with yourself, you have to think, well, maybe I did mean some of that. <laughs> and you end up down this rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, that's, that's the interesting thing about um, relationships is that they, you would think as you go on through time, you would get better and better at communicating with people. But um, there's also this thing I find that emerges where you, the longer you're in a relationship, you start to make assumptions about the other person's internal state and how they think. And that in itself can be an impediment to actually hearing what they actually said, you know, and what they really mean. And, and, you know, which is the, the, interesting it's like something with a stranger you can have a more honest conversation because you don't have those built-in assumptions right Mm -hmm. um whereas with somebody you know really well you 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 read into things more you think you can you know what their motivations for using this word over that word are when you might be right because you you know you, you have some model of who they are that you've but it's not who it's not exact the model isn't them it's a compression of them yeah, yeah, exactly. Sometimes it's easier to forget that. Yeah. So I'm going to interrupt here for just a second and sure. talk about something that's unrelated to data compression, but you made me think about it. Um, years ago, I used to be an intercultural consultant with a company, and the guy who started the company started it based on a protocol that he had developed called DIE, Description, Interpretation, Evaluation. And he used this with Um, one person who would be a cultural informant and the other person would be new to the culture. Mm -hmm. So, For example, I was training Japanese business people and um, things would happen where they would completely, from an American point of view, they'd completely misinterpret what they were seeing. Sure. Here's an example. Um, These business people would come over, we'd put them up in a, in an apartment for, six weeks or 26 weeks or however long they were here for the training. And then we would teach them how to run all the stuff in the American apartment. And, you know, we, they were young people just graduated from college. So we'd have to teach them how to cook, how to make a basic roasted chicken and, you know, maybe how to put together a salad and stuff like that. Have to teach them how to do the laundry, all of that. And then start working with them in our classes on how to do Uh, feedback in business, how to do presentations in business and that kind of stuff. So one day, one of the guys comes in and he says, Americans are just filthy. (laughs) So so I've got the DIE model, right? I said, oh, tell me what you saw. So he describes, he says, well, he said, I went to the laundry room and there was this lady in there and she had two big loads of laundry and she put it in, in two machines, big loads of laundry, washing these two loads of laundry. He said, this is just disgusting. So I said, oh, well, can you interpret for me what you saw? So D-I-E, right? Well, in Japan, we do a load of laundry every day. We don't let it stack up in the corner someplace until it's big piles of laundry. He said, that's disgusting. 
So, so then I come along and I evaluate and I say, well, the difference is that in Japan, your laundry machine only holds enough laundry for one day because they have these tiny little washing machines. Yep. And <laughs> you can only wash one towel and two pairs of underwear. And then you hang it up on the, on the balcony. He said, yes, that's right. I said, well, in America, we have big washing machines. So you can save the laundry until you have a big load. And that yep. way you use less energy and less water and so forth. <laughs> it never occurred to him, right? Yeah. So he was making an assumption based on what he observed, what he understood, what was coming from his worldview. Mm -hmm. So I have found the DIE model to be very helpful, even in relationships, you know, to, to try. But, but to, to get to the place where you can step back long enough to say, okay, tell me what you saw, you know. And, and in, when you're in a long-time relationship with somebody, they don't really want to do that. They just want to yeah. jump to the chase, you know, cut to the chase. You said this. This is what it meant. It hurt me. And you, you can't go through that process. But if you can, it's a very helpful process to go through. Yeah. Yeah, I've, I've often heard something similar from, like, um, you know, people that are, like, counselors. They'll say something like, you will – when you say something, get the other person to tell you back what they heard. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's a good, exactly. Cause that, that will give you, it's, it's a shortcut to what you're saying because that kind of them telling you back what they heard kind of is, is them, you getting to see it run through their filter mm -hmm. um, and then figuring out, you know, what, what was effective in that communication and what wasn't. Sorry, let me say why notifications on here um but yeah I've, I've never been able to get people to do that either because it's it's like oh no i don't did you, that, did you ever read that book men are from mars women are from venus by john gray I, i've ran i think i read like a half chapter of it so i'm in a bookstore it seemed interesting yeah well the beautiful thing he does there is he'll have these conversations and he'll play out the conversation this is what he said this is what he meant. Mm -hmm. This is what she heard. This is what she thought he meant. Yeah. <laughs> and, and they're so perfect. I mean, they're just, it's a perfect observation of the way, our, of the way minds work between a man and a woman when, when they're talking together. Yeah. So, so now let's take data compression and talk about, you talked a little bit about how it might work with story. Um, let's think about, how it works with language because you when when you uh you wrote a note the other day and you were talking about data compression in language and i thought you made some pretty interesting points yeah so i there i was um specifically talking about how um any anything written in human language compresses really really well like because the algorithms can find all these repeating patterns in them um and so I was relating to that, that specifically to entropy um, because, um, and I brought up an example from, from my field, which is cybersecurity. Um, and one of the ways you can detect kind of unusual activities, um, I was talking about something called DNS tunneling. And, and DNS tunneling is a way of uh, like smuggling data inside and outside of a network. 
um, so that it, it doesn't get lumped in with other things that are being inspected more thoroughly. It goes out with DNS traffic, which is, um, it's a really important protocol. It's basically like the, the phone book of the internet. Anytime you want to server mm -hmm. DNS. Okay. Yeah. So anytime you want to like, say you go to google.com, you don't actually communicate that name is just uh, symbolic, right? So it's a representation of a virtual kind of, you know, namespace that has to be resolved to an IP address that you actually communicate with. Mm -hmm. And, you know, depending on where you are in the world, it might resolve to different IP addresses, or it may give you a list of IP addresses that you possibly could go to and you'll figure out which one's closest. But anyway, so like that, those lookups are happening all the time. It's such a critical piece of the, the internet that, um, people that are network engineers and security people don't want to mess with it too much because you can break things easily. So oftentimes it's a great way to, to smuggle things inside and outside of a network um, because nobody wants to be too rigorous with how they regulate that thing. And oftentimes it's, it's everybody kind of basic has a, has a basic understanding of how it works, but most people don't really know how it works. Um, and so it's like one of those things they don't want to mess with. They're just like, yeah, give it access to the internet. Don't, don't mess with it. And so it's a great place to, to tunnel things through. Um, and so one of the ways you can detect that that tunneling is happening is you can measure the entropy in those lookups. Um, and the, the entropy level um, is a measure of just how much data is in it, whether it's compressed or otherwise. It's, it's, a, it's a measure of the complexity of all the information and in whatever that thing is. Um, and so because uh, human language has all these regularities in it, it tends to compress well. It, ha it tends to have a much lower entropy level. Whereas, um, you know, if somebody was trying to send data, they would maximize all these weird characters. They would, they would, so it might still look like a string, uh, well, it would have to be because, you know, um, the DNS lookup, is using ASCII characters, which are basically just anything you can type on a keyboard, but they would, they would maximize all these other weird characters and other things as a way to, to compress the amount of data they could get into that, that, um, that DNS lookup with each request going out to send data. Um, so it's just, um, I don't know if there's anything too insightful there, but that, um, you know, we have all these, these regularities in, in human language. It's, 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 I guess it's a measure of how low that bandwidth is in the actual communication that we're sending. Um, even though we have, even though like say a book is relatively large um, in, in the raw form of it, it compresses down. Like you can get like, you know, a, a few kilobytes and you can have like a book like war and peace. You know, it's, it's amazing how well it compresses. Um, but uh, I think that's just a demonstration of how low that bandwidth channel is. And often what happens with language is the life that gets really low entropy of, so what you're saying is like the book war and peace has a really low entropy. Exactly. Like the amount of real information in it is very low. Is that because it is already set in stone? It's, it is so well organized as a compendium of language. And that is the only place that that set of characters comes together is in the book war and peace and that's why the entropy is no it's just it's more think of it more as the that the patterns that are in it that pervade human language that that a lot of it is in some sense redundant if that makes sense 
Mm-hmm. Um, like it, it's, it's expanded out in a way that it, it makes it easy for us to read at, at like in real time. But um, if we were computers, we could read it in a completely different way and it would take up much less space. But here's the way to think of that is even though there's, you can think of there's a low, low entropy level in the language itself. What, what breathes life into it again is us, right? Like all the words on that page have this whole history in me that I am able to now enliven that, that text with. So it, it springs back to, so in its compressed form, it's this really tiny thing. It's not a lot of data, but um, I bring to it this other structure of, of all this life and experiences um, with these words. And now it, it comes, it jumps back into life in my imagination. So um, it's almost like every word in there is a token. Uh-huh. Those tokens open up um, a whole boatload of, memories and information and feelings and smells and sights inside of us as we read them. Yeah. I mean, I've been reading a lot of Owen Barfield and this is kind of something he really hones in on is his, his very first book was a book called the history of English words. And he kind of goes into this idea of words having souls and that they have this kind of life to them. And that one of the things we do now is, in this scientific materialist frame, we try to deny that in some sense. We want to work with them in sort of like a, a dead form. Um, I, I was reading this bit from him the other day where he says like the logician wants, he's, he's a, has to be a compromiser because he can't squeeze all the meaning out of the word, but he wants to get it down to, to being as dead as possible. He can't ever approach the zero point, but he's, he wants to get it as dead as possible so that the thing he constructs will have this timeless quality to it. You know, the thing, you know, it's almost like a mathematical constant is what he wants the word to be, but that's not what it is. So it, it always, it doesn't quite work in the ways that a logician would want it to. Um, but um, that's often what we're trying to do when we speak nowadays, I think, or at least a lot of people have the um, illusion that that's what we can or should be trying to do to be able to speak in this very precise way. Um, and, and he makes the point just, it's impossible that metaphor is impossible to, to it's, it's metaphor is like an essential ingredient in meaning, in meaning itself. I was just reading a big section in uh, C.S. Lewis miracles last night where he's talking about that very issue that, you, th- you might think you're getting rid of metaphor by, by getting rid of, say, talking about God as a father. <clears throat> but, but the minute you try to describe anything else, there's also metaphor in that description. It doesn't matter how far down you go, you're still using metaphor of some kind to discuss things that are not calculable by the senses. Anything that's outside of our senses um, requires metaphor. And, and in reality, even anything that is calculable by our senses requires metaphor to describe. So um, I want to add in a little bit here about um, when you were talking about words having souls and how sometimes a word can be concretized. We can take the soul out of it and, and just remember the skeleton, sort of. Um, I remember reading years ago that when Taylor Hudson was in China back in the late 1800s, I think, 
he was trying to um, talk about the gospel. He was trying to talk about Jesus Christ to the people in China. He was trying to explain to them about him. And he was having a hard time using the, the Chinese language that he was capable of speaking and understanding to mm-hmm. do this description. And he discovered that inside the Chinese characters, there's actually a lot of meaning buried. So there's one Chinese character, the Chinese character for righteousness. And the way Chinese characters are constructed, which I was learning at the time because I was learning Japanese, and Japanese also uses the Chinese characters for written language. <clears throat> but the way the Chinese characters are constructed is that they have quadrants. Some of them might be two halves, one on top of another. Some of them might have four quadrants. Some of mm-hmm. them might have two quadrants on top and one on the bottom. Um, but the the word he was looking at was righteousness, which um, has two quadrants. There's a top and a bottom. And the top is actually a picture of the Chinese pictograph for lamb. And the bottom is the Chinese pictograph for me. So righteousness is hmm. the lamb over me. Now, that is entirely mysterious, how that got buried into the Chinese language thousands of years ago. And we know it's been there for a long time because I think the Japanese adopted the Chinese pictographs in about 600 AD or something like that. The Japanese did? Okay. Yeah. And, and, and it was already in the Japanese pictograph for the word for righteousness. So it goes back a long, long time. And when I read that, it made me think that all the way back to the Tower of Babel, when there was one language, that there was a certain knowledge about God and his requirements. And when the, the languages got separated and the the migration went out and people carried a new language with them to new areas. That little bit of truth was buried in that language and it comes out in different ways in different languages, but that little bit of truth is buried there. Mm -hmm. But in the Chinese language, it got concretized into this picture and they don't ever think about that picture having that meaning. It's just a picture and it means the word righteousness. And so then yeah. righteousness becomes whatever it means in the current culture, but they don't go back and think, well, what, what meaning was buried in here from the beginning? And I think we have a lot of words like that. Um, C.S. Lewis used to talk about how the word Christian actually had a meaning when, when it was used by, to describe the people in Antioch. Yeah, I think it was actually used originally in a derogatory fashion. And then over time, when people began to use that for themselves, it began to describe a certain kind of people. And then it began to be a way of describing people who were kind or who were friendly. And then the word Christian began to take on the meaning of kind and friendly, like maybe a hundred years ago. And then when people were using this, oh, kind and friendly, then if you said someone was not a Christian, that was a pejorative. Yeah. Because that means they're not kind and friendly. So you were making a judgment against somebody when actually Christian simply meant someone who believed or someone who didn't believe. Mm-hmm. 
or I, and I don't, when you say in the beginning, it was a pejorative, I don't know what it meant then, but it's gone through all these iterations through the years. Yeah. I don't, I think it had something to do with, yeah. Like it would, there was, well, cause again, you know, especially in the, the Jewish world, I don't know where it originated, but I think it was, it was, um, I, I know I, I'd, I've heard from sources that it was, is pejorative in the sense that like, you know, Jesus was somebody that was uh, a criminal and was crucified. So it was like, um, and so it wasn't like, wasn't thought of as like a, a, a positive thing to be associated with that. Um, it, it, but of course I'm, I'm, I'm filtering this through my memory of, you know, <laughs> a million things I've heard. So I, I, I'm, I should, I should just, we should, I should have put that as a forewarning of this. I read, I read a lot of things and then I remember just a, a fraction of it. <laughs> yeah. So. I'm the same way. I, <clears throat> it comes in and I, and I think about it. I mean, it, it does get in my data set somewhere because it, it informs the next thing that I read, but it not, not always, it's not always recoverable with the right token. <laughs> yeah. And it's funny that, yeah, the things that, that do recall, you know, that's, that's the interesting about these conversations is that it's, it's weird. Like you may have, you plan on having a conversation about X, but then, the there's there's light gets cast in some weird direction that alights on something you you completely didn't intend um well and that's why i think this whole thing about data compression and memory comes in because what i notice is that if i'm talking to people that are completely different you know new people to me strangers but we're talking about things that are very meaningful to me memories will come back from 30 40 years ago that i haven't mm -hmm. thought about in decades but the memory will come back full blown. I'm there. I can place yeah, yeah. where I was. And, and that all came back from some word or some idea that somebody talked about. Now, that is a very mysterious thing. <laughs> How is it that our conscience, our consciousness is so similar to the way a computer is that you can, you can click on a link and up will open this you, you can open war and peace with one click of, of the computer. And it's but here's the odd thing. Is that you, thing. It's yeah. oftentimes you have those memories and, but you couldn't, you couldn't have recalled them on command. Exactly. Like even if someone gave you a visual description of this time and place, you're like, Oh, I'm not sure what I was doing then. But then you smell something or someone says something that puts you in a certain emotional frame of reference or something that, like you say, just transports you there immediately. And you, you get to, relive an experience which is interesting um sometimes it seems useful sometimes it seems completely superfluous to what's going on you know yeah well one of the ways it's useful i think is it with empathy oh yeah um and here's a stupid story about the other night so i was with my i have two daughters one is uh in her late 40s and one is in her mid-20s so there's 24 years between them and then i have a granddaughter who's 13 so the four of us are having dinner together yeah <laughs> and we just in a normal dinner we're just talking about stuff and then at some point my my 20 something daughter turns to my granddaughter who's only 10 years younger than her and she says she says well when i was your age <laughs> <laughs> And, and she was bringing up something about um, something about how she didn't have nearly as many options for um, you know 
internet or something like that. Yeah. We didn't have cool apps then. Yeah. And, and so then my older daughter jumps in and she says, well, when I was your age, you know, all I had. Was <laughs> and so we got in this, when I was your age game. And yeah. one of the things that my older daughter remembered was when I was your age, I had to help my dad butcher chickens. And I was the one that had to hold the chicken while he lopped its head off. <laughs> the 13 year old is just freaking out. right? But the minute she said that, that whole yard where this took place, what the fence yeah. looked like, how she was standing up against the fence and, and the way my husband would butcher the chickens in the yard and the sound and the smell of the blood, the yeah. whole memory just popped into my frame right that moment. And it gave me so much empathy for my daughter because it never occurred to me at the time how that was impacting her. Yeah. I mean, I was already old enough and in my own childhood, we used to butcher 200 chickens at a time. You know, when I was eight or nine years old, it was my job to take the feathers off the chickens, you know, <laughs> but <clears throat> I had instant empathy because this whole thing came into view. So memory is a very strange and how to, how did our little brain have the capacity to hold all of that data yeah well i think it, it it holds it in a in a compressed form obviously um that was another comment i i put on your conversation with alice about the stochastic resonance mm -hmm. um because because if you look up stochastic resonance one of the things that it takes you to is is like images that have been processed with this and um it, it's these very like it's almost like every every um point of contrast in the the uh like a photograph say the, i think the photograph they had there was the uh the l'arc de triomphe in in paris where it's like um you know uh, just a, a very simple photograph of that and then they had different versions of it with just dots filled in mm -hmm. and i had this like sense of like yes that's how my memory works oftentimes when i'm trying to remember something i have like this very kind of blurry version of it that I can reconstruct. Um, and it's really good for, it's often really good for recognition. Cause I, you can always tell when those, if those dots over overlaid on the original, you can always like, there's a, there's an immediate match. So you can say, okay, yes, I recognize this, but it's not oftentimes it's not good enough to, to like, I couldn't draw that in the detail. Mm -hmm. Like I would be so off, but I could recognize, yes, this is that place, that exact place. Um, but I couldn't, I couldn't, you know, reproduce it. Um, which is, it's interesting, you know, what, what it is that, uh, what we hold on to again and what's important. Um, and it's, it's kind of built into Jordan Peterson's idea of maps of meaning is that data compression idea as well. It's at a very high layer, right? It's like kind of like at this meta layer is what he's referring to. But I think all throughout our biology, every layer down, every part of us is working this out of trying to figure out what's important enough to pass up to the layer above it. And so what we get when you get to consciousness at the kind of the top of the hierarchy, it's this very small subset of things that we get to experience and kind of have our little consciousness vote on what we what we do next with um which is interesting and that's you know the the the, the kind of maps of meaning thing is is 
Jordan Peterson's way of trying to articulate all that different, that different filtering that builds up into consciousness, you know, all those things. Cause you like, that's one of the things he, and he talks about this in some of his lectures. It's one of the discoveries of all that people pursuing AI right now, artificial intelligence, they're learning how complex, how much more complex the world is than we knew. Um, and how, how is it, how do you take through this infinite possibility and funnel it down to something that can actually make decisions, um, in real time? It's, it's, it seems like almost impossible, um, that to do that in a meaningful way. Um, and, and when I think about it, it makes me think more and more like what role God must be playing in consciousness that we can, that the process of all that filtering out of all the data actually can sort and select things that are meaningful um, rather than just random things. Now, you could say some of that, you know, Jordan Peterson's argument is that, well, it's this evolutionary structure that's, you know, you know 3.5, 4 billion years old. That, that, but even with that, I just, I don't know. Like, I'm like, it doesn't seem like there's enough matter <laughs> in the, in the brain to do that processing in an effective way for what we, what we experience. Um, but that's just kind of my, my intuition. I don't know. I don't have the math to, 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 uh, to prove that, but it just seems to me like, or especially like when I think about say like a, a small bird, you know, it has this tiny little brain and yet can navigate, you know, migration paths, you know, across the globe, you know, how is it doesn't, I, I can't, you know, I can't see that there's um, enough, even with all the compression, I don't see how it, it finds the meaningful way through that. Like, I don't know. I don't know if I'm making myself clear or not, but. Absolutely. I'm, I'm thinking of this ant that I read about one time. There's an ant that actually farms aphids. It, it will, it, the ant, can make some sort of little thread very similar to a spider's thread. And mm -hmm. it uses that thread to um, build little structures in between a couple of leaves that makes kind of a barn. And then the aphids stay in there so that they're protected from the elements. And yeah. then the ant will actually stroke these aphids. And as they stroke the aphid, out will come the milk that the aphid has gotten as it's gone around chewing up the rose bushes. Yeah. Now, that's just an ant, and it, it, it knows somehow how to do that, and it has mm -hmm. all the, the necessary information and skill to right. accomplish this in order to keep its little thing going. <laughs> and, and who knows how early along the evolutionary chain ants were. Um, very, very sophisticated machinery there. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I was just um, watching um something it was uh it was three different people talking about um darwinism that was uh i can't remember the guy's names um but he was a it's david galantner it was oh, kind yeah, of an unusual we were watching the mathematical yeah. probabilities david galantner um david yeah, he, and um yeah and stephen meyer <clears throat> yeah so i've often you know i like I, so I don't know if you saw any of my talks with Paul, but I basically, you know, spent a long time out of the church 
Um, but even when I was outside of, of church, I, I never found a, the scientific materialist perspective convincing because I just felt like, it just felt like, even if you told me that, you know, there was billions and billions of years, it just didn't seem like enough time to, 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 to produce the kind of complexity around us. And that's kind of what they're, I guess, I don't know why it's just now coming out or if it's just now being recognized, but yeah, that the, the search space needed to make a functional protein is just ridiculous. I forget what it was like, something like, you know, one out of 10 to the 77th power, you know, functional pro. So one out of that 10 to seven power to find out just a one functional protein mm-hmm. out of, out of the mass of possible proteins. And then to think that that you could search that space randomly and find the functional ones is like, that's, it's crazy. It's like thinking, you know, you could win the lottery every day for like a year and then people would think, Oh yeah, that could happen. That could happen by chance. You know, a lot of people are playing the lottery. Yeah. One person plays the lottery and they win it every day for a year. No, everybody would immediately go, no, something, something of design happened there, you know, but it's just weird to me that we, can think that I don't know. It's it. That's a that's a huge search space, right? One to the you know ten to the seventy seventh is is just a, an, an unfathomable amount of. Well, isn't it something like the number of particles in the universe is only ten to the ninetieth or something like that? The number of all particles in the universe. So yeah, um, I don't know if you've heard of James Tour. He's a chemist and he does nanotechnology. He's one of the foremost nanotechnology experts in the world and he says when you go back and you work the chemistry you realize that there's no way it could have worked that way because chemistry requires that the materials be in in prime condition for the next step to take place but everything degrades over time so you you might accidentally stumble on something that creates a certain something at some point but by the time the next something was ready to be yeah. added to that, the original something would have degraded to the point that there, you'd have to start all over again. And yeah, it's, it says it's just impossible. Oh, I, I, I you know, I, it, it defies explanation to me. I just don't think that people can call themselves scientists. You know, and that, that conversation was interesting because people talked, they talked about, you know, why, you know, Darwin was, was a compelling idea and why it's gained such a foothold. but you know, it just that we know too much now, I think, and of the detail, both at the macro scale and the micro scale to, to, to hold it in good faith and call it science. Um, but it's but it's clearly integrated in a, into a particular worldview now. So that which is, you know, makes it unshakable. Um, the other thing they said, which is kind of related to what you were just saying, was how like, OK, if we wanted to make any real significant change to an organism, organism, like, say, you know, some predecessor to the giraffe we wanted to turn into the giraffe um well to to make that genetic change it would have to be a a mutation in the dna that affected the organism very early in its life so like like in utero it'd have to be start building that long neck or it's not going to happen and the problem is all the mutations we know about that affect organisms early in life they're fatal like they just kill the organism Mm -hmm. we don't know of and, and, you know, we, a lot of the, the mutations we discover nowadays, even though they may uh, provide some benefit to the organism, like, say, um, like antibiotic resistance um, for, like, some bacteria, 
it often degrades some part of the animal as well, like so that it's it's not functional in a broader sense. It's not it's able to survive this specific antibiotic now, but it's its prospects for long life and longevity aren't have been degraded in some real way, even though it can now survive this antibiotic. So we don't know of we don't really know of mutations that are really creative in a generative sense that we we propose that Darwinism is the is the you know the answer for all complexity in in species of life we don't we don't have real good examples of that you know and yet we still also, what i think is really interesting is why darwinism became so gripping so popular to people and <clears throat> what it makes me think about is um and my brain works in odd ways but you had mentioned something about zip bombs uh-huh in um can you describe a zip bomb? Yeah, so and it's um in cybersecurity it's um it's it's a file that's really small. It's a compressed file, so which is why it's called a zip bomb. Uh but it could be of any variety. It could be like, you know, there's all sorts of different formats for how um, you know, a file can be compressed. It could be a RAR file or um, you know, a million different things, but um it's compressed it's like in a an attack, right? Yeah. So the, what happens is you get this innocent looking file. Uh, it's, it's minuscule in size, it's kilobytes in size, but it has compressed within it. The, the uncompressed version of it would be like bigger than the whole contents of your hard drive or any hard drive in, on, uh, in the world. Right. It's, it's got this like nested structure to it. That's able to like, um, to recreate like a, like an, maybe like an infinite amount of zeros, and and that compresses really well, right? Because there's no complexity to that um, that infinite string of zeros, right? It can you can you can um, you can represent that in really tiny ways, just like we just did with ten to the seventy seventh, right? There's an easy way to represent this infinitely large thing in a compressed form um, because we're we're kind of um, leaving out all the complexity. It's just it's just one with a bunch of zeros on the end, so that compresses really well. 10 to the 77th. So you can do that with, with uh, a file where I basically described an infinite amount of data in this, this tiny file. And what happens is you go to open it and now it either fills up your hard drive and, and it just disables you that way. Or the oftentimes what happens is it's your antivirus program. And that's the first thing to inspect a new file. And so it goes, Oh, what's in this antivirus? What's in this little file? And then it goes to look at all that data and it blows it up. So now the antivirus is the disabled hmm. um, because it's too much data. So it's, it's just a way of overwhelming the system. So when I saw you talking about zip bombs and I, I, the picture that I got right away was propaganda. Interesting. Because propaganda is um, something that with, with just a, a slight change in language, you can create an image that sort of virally consumes an individual or or boxes them into a certain worldview or you know the whole political correctness thing um <clears throat> let's just take an example a, a propaganda example um the words pro-life and pro-choice mm -hmm. um <clears throat> both sides would say that the other side is propaganda Okay, so sure. let's not right now have the discussion about which side is propaganda and which isn't. Let's just look at it as propaganda. 
when you say pro-life, the people on the pro-life side instantly have a picture of what that means. It's very mm -hmm. in-depth, filled with all kinds of information and background that has to describe that to the person who believes it. The person who doesn't believe it also has a picture of what that means. It's vast mammoth amount of information and feeling and emotion and everything tied up in that. But um, all you have to do, or, or the word racist, you call somebody a racist, you've instantly created like a zip bomb. You've, you've annihilated that person's life. Yep. You've placed them in a certain box, a certain arena, or, or some of the, um, some of the language that, that Marx used um, from each according to his ability to each according to his need. It creates an image. It creates a picture that is benevolent and hopeful and um, utopian. And as though this is going to create a, a beautiful world and people can be completely captivated by that phrase and yet that phrase by itself can is is like a zip bomb that can destroy yeah. the entire nation so it's um it is very like propaganda yeah and i th when, when i think of when i think of propaganda i think of just um i think the, one of the ways it always functions is a um is a presentation of a false dichotomy um and and I th a lot of the you know i i've often wondered what effect American politics with our kind of, I don't know if we're unique in this. I, I'm sure it's, it seems like a lot of the world is becoming this way in the political structure that there's like just a, basically a two party system. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, what, what that ends up, the, the, the end cause of what ends up happening as a result of that is I, if there's only two parties, I don't necessarily have to win right? I don't have to be the best. I just have to prove the other guy's evil in some way. I got to, so I, I don't really need to have an idea for success or prop, you know, in fact, anything, any ideas I define that are, that are, um, you know, uh, interesting and particular and specific gives more surface area for me to be attacked. Exactly. Right. So yeah. the propaganda, like, so I, what, what my better move is to say things that are just generic um, and like, and, you know, again, and have some false, um, sense of just whatever good is like, and, uh, C.S. Lewis said this, that in his book, he has a book studies on words too. I don't know if he was influenced by Barfield, but in his book on studies on words, he makes observation that any word that ends up getting, uh, taken up by, by politics, it degrades and it doesn't, it has no descriptive power or complexity. It, it just ends up being a synonym for good or evil. And so that's what people, people pick up just those words that already are a synonym for good or evil. And that's what they'll, that's what their message will be again. And it, it presents this false dichotomy. It's either a or B when the reality of any Jordan Peterson is talking about excess order, right? right. You end up with a world which is so ordered because it's, it's described only by these very simplistic words and simplistic images. And so it's too much order inside that space because there's not enough knowledge. There's not, there's insufficient knowledge. And that, that happens in both, like in all ideologies, right? There's insufficient right. knowledge. 
it's very tightly described by very meaningless words that, that have only this capacity to generate fear. And um, yeah, well, you could think of like conversations like this as a zip bomb that blows up that propaganda in a certain sense, because, well, it's not a zip bomb, but it's, it's the information that the information content in a conversation like this does not fit in any of those frames. Right. So it can destroy the Like, so somebody that gets exposed to this and sees, okay, there's something real that, that these people are talking about and the complexity of it ex greatly exceeds my framework. It blows that framework out of existence. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's why, you know, for those frameworks to continue to live, they need, you know, the sound bites of, of Twitter and, you know, the talking heads on uh, CNN and Fox news and everybody to just have these short little soundbite things that are all, you know, trying to fit into those smaller and smaller little bits. Right. Um, whereas th these YouTube conversations that go on for hours where people really kind of dive down into the weeds, there's, this can really explode those frameworks and destroy them because the, the, there's just too much complexity there to be represented in those, those minimal, you know, those false dichotomies that they have. So you're saying this is an uncompressible conversation. <laughs> exactly. Which is also why you have a hard time, you know, quickly saying, Oh, what was the conversation about to somebody else? Cause you're like, okay, I, I don't know. Like it doesn't, doesn't yeah. cross very well. So what you just said reminded me of a quote by John Pollock that I wrote down the other day. I don't know who John Pollock is, but I love this quote. What you know is orders of magnitude less than what is true. Yeah. And that, that's the whole maps of meaning idea too, um, which is, it, it's a pessimistic in a certain sense, right? Cause it's like, oh man, I'm never gonna ever know truth, you know? Cause it's so far off from what me as a, a finite creature has access to. But then the flip side of it is this positive, which is there's so much stuff to go explore that I don't know about. Mm -hmm. You know, there's like this, this infinite frontier of which we, we, in, in the world we live in, because we have this scientific materialist framework, you know, we think that because I said this in my conversation with Paul, we have the world kind of mapped down to like the last millimeter with GPS coordinates that we've, we've exhausted all the frontiers, you know, we've gotten down to the quarks in science, you know, we, we've, we've, there's no more frontiers for you to go explore. And, you know, that idea of Jordan Peterson's like, no, actually there's frontiers everywhere you look. You just gotta, you gotta get past your map. You gotta like tear a hole in the map and allow, and the way you do that, you know, is through error. You have to get out there and do things that where you make mistakes and where you make those mistakes are like these little rips in the map where transcendence shines through and, and gives you real information about what you don't know. Yeah. Um, so, one of the thoughts that came to me when you were talking about how when um, when memories come back, there's sort of like those little dots that that are trying to build this structure. I forget what what the context was when you were talking about like it was this st stochastic resonance. Okay, stochastic the resonance when they're rebuilding something based on increasing the amplitude by adding some kind of noise into the situation. Right. And so you get these little dots. And one time I was watching how the Mandelbrot set was constructed. And do you, you familiar mm -hmm. with the Mandelbrot set? Yeah. Yeah. So 
when when he was first when he first had that idea the the first images were very much like that they were just little dots kind of marking out the perimeter of this shape that he couldn't quite discern but then over time when they worked with it more they were able to get a very refined look at the border of it but it kind of occurred to me that the mandelbrot set is sort of a um, dynamic picture or static picture of order and chaos mm -hmm. because yeah. what's within the what's within the image is the the limits of stability it, the border kind of shows the limits of stability but the border is very very active and very interesting border there's lots of little places to play in that border yeah and, and you can go out a long ways. In fact, you've looked at those, those probably infinite animations where- Yeah, where you keep zooming into the picture. Yeah, yeah. and so without losing stability, there are still many, many, many places to explore along the edges. And that makes me think about Jonathan Peugeot when he talks about how all the, the monsters live on the margin. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but but the margin is also where all the where all the creative opportunities are. And then Jordan Peterson talks about the margin being that space between order and chaos where, yeah. where you where you're at your most creative. And so that all makes me think that there's something about the Mandelbrot set that is more than it seems to be. I know it's just a a picture of a mathematical formula, but there's something else there. And um, yeah, I, th I think you're right. Um, it is like how you can keep zooming into it at, to an infinite level, and it, it the the pattern keeps appearing at every level. Mm -hmm. um, something you said. Uh, well, I I just got. Have you you have have you read um, Jonathan Peugeot's brother's book by any chance? Yes. You did. Okay, I'm yeah, curious what you. Like a year ago, so I don't okay. remember all of it, but I remember just. <laughs> I just got it in the mail the other day. Blowing up, man. <laughs> <laughs> did so? Did um? What, did you find it uh, effective or interesting? Yes, I would say, especially the first half of it. I was like, yes, 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 pictures. yes, yes. I, this is kind of the way I see the world, and yes, yes. And then I got in the second half of it, and I'm like, huh, not so sure. Uh -huh. I, I, I hit a certain point where I couldn't quite. I couldn't quite go with him, but I should read it again. And okay, yeah, I'm curious. I I got it just yesterday, and I found I didn't realize that it had all these pictures in it. So that was I found that interesting that it was like these visual representations of things. Which when I, the conversations I've heard about it, I, I wasn't able to pick up on at all. Uh -huh. um, so I'm, I was curious if if you had gone through that, and if those those images had you'd found those images helpful or if they'd um, reshaped your lens on, on how you looked at anything. Well, you know, I'll, I'll go back and reread it. Okay. <laughs> talk about it next time. I, 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 that would really be fun. It would really be fun. So, um, was there something else I wanted to, we have just a few minutes left. I know you have a hard stop at a certain point. So, yeah, at the top of the hour, I got to get on another call. Oh, I know what I wanted you to explain. 
you made a, a note about story as a 4D structure. Yeah. I keep hearing all this stuff about 4D and 5D and 280D and what on earth are they talking about? Because all I can picture is yeah. right? Oh yeah, I'm the same way. I can't I can't picture 4D as well. Um, but I, when I put 4D, I just meant it, it, story, it has the time element built in. So it, it, um, so you're thinking of time as the fourth dimension, right? Cause, cause that's what, what stories are all about, right? That's, um, stories like, again, stories are this amazing data compression algorithm. I just like, the more I think about them, the more I get kind of like, it's just amazing how much we can compress into them. And again, part of that's because you, you say something in a story form and then the, the uh, you in the telling of it and then the other person receiving it, they breathe this life back into it with their experience. Mm -hmm. So I could say something like really compressed, like boy meets girl. And like you could like in an instant expand that out. And like, you probably have some like canonical version of that story in your head. But then even from that canonical version, you could have like all these interesting deviations from it, right? That, that expand out from that tiny little phrase. But, but it, it's because that story links up with something in uh, some sort of structural element inside of you that allows for that rapid expansion of it into like all these different areas. And the cool thing about stories is like what we really care about stories in is how they end. Like that's like people have this like it's funny people say oh i loved it until the ending like you know there's and the, the meaning of the story you don't get to find out the meaning of any story until the end and and you said this recently a bunch of times like how what happens at the end can totally rewrite the meaning of everything else that's happened previously so you can have these events that occur in your life that reshape the meaning of the events that happened earlier in your life it's this weird kind of effect that they can have. Um, and we all live in stories, which you could think of a story as a cycle. Again, like, you know, you could tell me a story about your day yesterday, but that story is embedded of a story of your week and in the story of your month and of your year and of this season of your life. And, you know, your stories embedded in the story of your family and that family's story, like it, all these stories get embedded in other stories. And so, we, um, and, and the meaning of any one of these stories, you, you don't get to find out till it's over. Um, so it's like, it's this weird structure we use uh, for its predictive qualities because again, that, that, that time element is so important, right? Um, all a story is, is like a, is like a beginning, a middle and an end. And the effect of it is that you use it as a, as a predictive mechanism, right? To say, if I do X, this is likely to happen over the course of this time. You know, oh, how interesting. So it's kind of like almost calculating probabilities. Exactly. Like, and so you, so knowing the canonical version plus all the deviations to it is really important too. Like, that's why we often like, we always want to twist on the story when we hear it. Right. Because that's, if it holds together and you know, that's, that's the other thing you always look at us. I always think like we rate stories based on how much useful information they give to us. Like, you know, how does there's a sense in which a, the story has to ring true or it's not a good story. Um, and, and part of the way it rings true is like it's, it, it can, 
it it retains some essential structure that's mirrored within us, but then it has this kind of wrinkle that also rings true. That it's like a new it's like it's that light shining through the map. It's like oh, here's some more information. Um, and and we want we want both of those things. You know, we want the archetypal story, but it's got to be embodied in a new way. Um, Let me throw something at you here. Right. <laughs> My husband and I look at movies very, very different way, okay? Mm -hmm. So one of his favorite movies is um, Meet the Parents. Okay. You ever seen that film? That's the Ben Stiller? Yes. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I can't, I almost can't stand to watch that movie, not because it's not very entertaining, but because I know within the first 10 or 15 minutes, everything is going to go bad all the time. <laughs> and, and that I get under so much stress watching yeah. people like that, that I just can't tolerate it. Mm -hmm. but for him, it's fascinating. So, and he's that way with people. He's fascinated by people that are a little bit different, a little bit unusual. And I like something that I know is going to end well. <laughs> Well, that story ends well. Um, yeah, it ends but well. It is, it is. I, I, that until story, the very end. In, in that specific movie, I find it. There's a lot of funny things in the movie, but I I find them very unbelievable. It feels like it's being stretched to some yeah. degree of unbelievability the whole time, which is what you're saying. Which is the trauma you're experiencing? Which is like. Oh, this really needs to be resolved. What's what's happening? But it doesn't get resolved. It just keeps building and building in a kind of unrealistic way. Well, I'll give you another example: Deliverance. I've not. I've, not, I've seen bits and pieces. Okay, I never did see the whole thing because I went to see the movie when <laughs> I was in the theater, and five minutes into the movie, I physically had to get up and walk out. Yeah, and that was back in the days when the cost of a movie ticket was not inconsequential to my budget. But I knew something really terrible was going to happen. Yeah, I didn't want to be there when it did. Yeah. So to me, that says it says something to me about me that I don't understand. And why is it that those things are so difficult for me to process when I'm watching it happen to somebody else? Even though some, I've had some pretty terrible things happen to me, mm -hmm. and somehow I've been able to manage that. And well, it isn't that I've been able to manage it, but but God has walked with me through those things, and because of His presence with me, I've been okay. But right. I, maybe it's watching it happen to somebody else when when they're not okay and they don't have anybody walking with them through it. I just the pain is just so bad. Yeah. It's interesting how you know like certain things are going to happen in stories. I often have this experience like in this day of uh of Netflix now where like I'll be watching some show and like I have to pause it for some reason to go do something. Mm -hmm. And while I'm pausing it and going doing the other thing, I come back and I know what's going to happen next. It's like somehow and, and, it'll, and, all, and well, the only time this is ever notable to me is when it's a surprise what happens next. And I know, it, right? Like it's some twist. And it's off. And I'm always like, it's funny because it's like, obviously, somehow I know that. Like some part of me knows that. But I don't consciously know how I know it. Mm -hmm. You know, like it has to be like, you know, some sort of, 
change of like there must be like like someone raises an eyebrow or some you know subtle tell is is being portrayed through some of the actors' interactions, but um, it and in real time I wouldn't probably pick up on it, but the the pausing and coming away and it's still kind of floating in the back of my mind. I come back and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is what's going to happen next. Mm-hmm. Um, and and in, related, I was watching one of Paul's videos the other day where he was talking with, uh, what's the guy, Benjamin Boyce. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I have, this, I have this experience nowadays where um, I often will just be completely, like, overcome emotionally by something. Like, and it's, like, it's, it's the weirdest thing. I actually have, like, a, a catalog of things. Because I, I decided, like, this, like, in 2016, I decided this is when it all started. Um, it's kind of been part of my journey back to like uh, going back to church and, you know, exploring my faith is like, I decided I was going to start paying attention to it. So I, I have a catalog of all the things in my life, not all of them because I, it happens too frequently to keep track of, but I often now have it. I'm, I'm because I'm paying attention to it. I often now will have the experience of knowing it's going to happen before it does and not knowing exactly why. So the other day I was watching Paul and he was talking and something about the way he was talking. I was like, I know this is going to happen. Like, I know this is what he's going. And I paused it and I'm like, I know what he's going to say next is going to make me cry, which is weird. And then, and then it was a bit where he was talking about seeing God's glory on like, um, all the, like on all the little conversations that were happening at his meetup. And I, I mean, he must've, there must've been something in, his uh, emotion, like he doesn't sh- like, cause he's such a, like a public speaker. He doesn't give away a lot, but there must've been something in, like how he emoted something before that, that let me know that he was going to say something that was moving and personal to him. But it was weird. Like that, like it may, it makes me, it back to your point of like, we know all sorts of things that we, we can't articulate that are beneath the surface, you know, that is in that, um, implicit layer of knowledge that, um, you know, you couldn't describe to somebody, but it's, it's a real component of truth. It's a real component of the most important. It's probably, it's more of that is what's most important to you and less of it is what you can actually articulate. I would love to explore this more in our next conversation. How, how these things get, how, how do we recognize truth? Mm-hmm. And how do we recognize falsehood? Because I had some ideas on that based on, on our previous conversation too. And what you just were talking about with having these strong emotional reactions, um, I'm pretty confident that that's tied into your faith because I have, mm-hmm. I have had those same experiences. Sometimes they have been so overwhelming that I'm, I'm like transfixed in a, a a place I can't quite describe where I'm at, but I can't, I, I literally can't move from that place that I'm in. The emotion is so overwhelming. No. But it, this, I'm just going to tie it up with what you said about War and Peace being a very small file because it's so compressible because there's, re, because there's a lot of redundancy there in the information. Mm-hmm. And what that really says is that information has almost no relationship to meaning because it's a very small file in terms of 
the information that's there, but the meaning is so massive that it not only means that when I read it, I am changed, but it has literally changed millions of people and probably changed historical movements and everything else because mm -hmm. of the meaning that's there. So truth is like that. Truth and um so anyway, I want to explore that the next time. No, that, that's very interesting. Yeah. I, there's some, there's some comp component. Yeah. I think you're right though. There's something outside of us that again, that, that makes me think again, just that, that God has to be operating somewhere in our consciousness that we're able to, out of this, this tiny fragment of something, we're able to, to breathe life into something in a very deep way. Mm -hmm. Um, now, yeah, that it's, um, that's very interesting. And what's uh, the other thing that I was thinking about, I just wanted to note quickly was, you know, C.S. Lewis was good friends with Owen Barfield and they had all these conversations about this stuff. And one of the things that C.S. Lewis says in Surprised by Joy, which I kind of agree with, but don't, he has this um, dichotomy between the enjoyed and the contemplated where he basically said, you know, I don't know if, have you read Surprised by Joy? Yes, it was a long time ago. It's kind I, of his, I was trying, I looked up the enjoyment contemplation dichotomy yesterday because yeah. you mentioned it. Yep. And I, I had a hard time understanding what I was reading. So I'd like okay, to. Okay, maybe, maybe I can compress it better. Um, so basically he had this idea that, okay, like he had this idea. So part of Surprised by Joy is his autobiographical account of becoming a Christian mm -hmm. and how it all went about. And it's weird. He focuses on the weirdest things in that story. Like, I don't. I don't I know feeling that way when I read it. Like, what? yeah, <laughs> he, like he talks about all this stuff from his school days and like, it's just, it's just bizarre. Like what, what he considers formative in his experiences. Right. Um, but one of the things that he found was really formative is this idea of like joy. Um, and that like, and he finds it in the weirdest of places, you know, he has this like imaginary world of, talking animals that him and his brother create when they're kids called like, I think it's boxing land or something. And there's like little bits of joy in there and other. And so, but he, so he finds this joy in all these places and he says that, well, you know, the, the surest way to kill that joy is to start thinking about it, to have this kind of like, Oh, what is it that manufactures this? Like, and, and that's the division point right there between the contemplation and the joy. Like you kill it because you try and, and I think part of, <laughs> I don't, I don't know, like, I don't know if this is true or not, but I feel like, so I think C.S. Lewis, if you read him, he's, he's such an analytical person. He's like, mm -hmm. he's such a sharp mind and like he, 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 he would, in some sense, he's the most rational rationalist there ever was in a lot of ways and still finds his way to Christianity. Um, even though I think, I don't know, that's a path to Christianity, but I don't know if it's, I think it, in some ways, I, I see a lot of parallels between C.S. Lewis and Jordan Peterson in that they, that that rationalism gets you kind of really close, but not all the way. Um, and and kind of how Jordan Peterson's hovering where he's at is is because I think of some of his rationalism as well. But anyway, um, like I'm getting myself off track. Um, I think because I often have the experience, like since I started trying. That, that experience I have where I'm overwhelmed with emotion, it, it reminds me a lot of that, that experience of joy as well. And 
I've found that there are things I can do if I do try and dissect it in this kind of rational way. Mm-hmm. I, I, um, I do, I destroy it. Like it goes away instantly. Like it becomes this, you know, I can, but there's another thing I can do where I kind of dive in deeper to it. And I, I kind of ask it, it is, it's still kind of a rational thought. Cause it's kind of like a why, like, why is this so important to me? And that kind of takes me into a deeper level of it. That oh, like makes oh, me oh, this is so good. Cause I want to explore that, that okay. why, why and the how, um, there, there's a very important thing there, but I got to go. Yep. So let's I do catch too. this next time. Joy, Perfect. joy and contemplation and rationalism versus joy and C.S. Lewis and Jordan Peterson is for next time. Perfect. Okay. Great. <laughs> right. Thank you so much. Good. Sure. Talk. Take care, Karen. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.